Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to John 4? We're going to be in John 4 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles who will get a Bible to you. Uh, my name is Calvin. If you're visiting here, I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. So thankful that you are worshiping with us. And um, man, my day is already made. I got to see my uh, little nephew get dedicated. He uh, was Jack Maverick, the Top Gun kid. And uh, that was fun to see. And just to see all those young families is such a cool thing. Um, another thing I'm really excited about... Um, we have our junior high uh, winter camp happening at Camp Harvest this weekend, and we got a message last night from Brendan, our uh, student ministry resident who leads our middle school ministry, and he said that um, there were 47 kids who came forward to profess Jesus Christ as Lord last night in the session, so we're really uh, encouraged and excited about that, and uh, this is kind of a, an emotional weekend for me because I have sixth grade girls who are at camp for the first time this year. And uh, I remember 10 years ago when I was doing student ministry and we would be at Camp Harvest and I would talk to Pastor Chris and I'd be like, man, you know, we'd have our little babies with us and we're like, it's going to be so cool when they're at Camp Harvest someday. And uh, 10 years later, now that they're there, I mostly just feel old and sad. So uh, be praying for me as, as well as our middle schoolers that we would all make it through uh, this weekend. Um, but I'm excited for God's word. I'm excited for what he's doing in our church. And uh, we're going to do something that's a harvest first. We're, we're going to try something a little different this morning. Uh, if you've been here for a while, you know that we often open our messages with a big idea or a big question that kind of sets the tone for where we're going. We're not going to do that this morning. We're actually going to play a game. All right, first time ever at Harvest, we're going to have an opening game. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to grab a pen, if you have it and are taking notes, have it out and ready. And what I'm going to do, here's how the game's going to work. I'm gonna throw up on the screen a very famous passage of scripture. It is the love passage of scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 13. This is the passage that you hear at weddings, right? When there's a young couple that's about to get married and they're staring into each other's eyes and they're reading over, this is what love is. And they're like, this is so amazing. And all of us who are at the wedding, who've been married a while, like, yeah, it's not that easy, right? Um, it feels easy in the moment, but it actually takes a lot of work. And so here's what it is. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And it endures all things. Okay, here's the game. I want you to look at that list. There's a lot of descriptors of what love is, and I want you to write down on your notes which is the hardest to do in that list practically. And, and I wanted you to write it for yourself, not for your spouse, right? Not what, hey, this is what my spouse is worst at. I want to write down for you in this list, is it being patient? Is it being kind? Is it not being resentful? What in this list is the most difficult for us to live out in a practical way. So I see a lot of staring, and I don't see a lot of writing yet, so do me this. Uh, when you write it down, give me a thumbs up so I know that we've got it, for the most part, written down and we can keep moving. And uh, if you don't give me a thumbs up, I'll stay here all day. I've got nowhere to be, I promise you that. My girls are at camp. <laughs> all right, I'm seeing some thumbs. All right, we'll keep going. If you haven't written it down yet, think about it, and I want you to write it down. 
Um, here's why we're playing this game, because we're going to be in a very famous passage of Scripture over the next two weeks. We're going to look at an interaction Jesus has at a well with a woman in Samaria. This is a very famous interaction of Jesus. In fact, there's so much good stuff in John 4, I've got to break it up over two weeks. We can't hit it all in one message. But this week, we're going to see Jesus excel at what I believe the hardest part of that list is. I think the hardest thing to do when it comes to loving others is believing all things and hoping all things. In fact, I would argue that at the center of the majority of the relational issues in your life, whether that be marriage issues, workplace issues, friendship breakdowns, parenting issues, even macro issues in our society like racism, a lot of it stems from the refusal to believe the best about others and to hope the best, but rather we believe the worst and view people through the lens of mistrust. And Jesus is going to show us how love views people, and it's going to be a way that, that challenges our hearts, I think, in a very practical and significant way. So if you're ready this morning, say, I'm ready. All right, let's get into it. John 4, starting at verse 1. Here's what he says. He says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing even more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. All right, so on the surface, this is very, very kind of straightforward. Jesus is traveling back to Galilee, which was where he did the majority of his teaching and miracles. It was his ministry hub. He's got to go through Samaria. It's middle of the day. He's hot. It's tiring. He sits down at a well. He wants something to drink, and he meets a woman there, and he asks her to give him a drink. All right, on the surface, it's like, okay, this is very normal. But in reality, this was a minefield that Jesus was having to navigate. It would have been very easy for Jesus not to believe all things and hope all things about this woman, but to actually assume the worst, to shun her or avoid her altogether. And there were multiple reasons for this. First of all, I'm going to name all three right now. First of all, she was a Samaritan. That was a problem. She was a woman. That was a problem. And uh, we'll find out later that she had a very sketchy reputation. She was a woman from Samaria who had a sketchy reputation, and all three of these would have given Jesus reasons to frame this woman in a poor light or frame her negatively. So let's work through them quick. Uh, the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other, and here's why. Samaritans were half Jewish, half Assyrians, and when the Assyrian Empire came and conquered Jerusalem, they took a lot of Jews back to Babylon with them, but a lot they just let stay in the region, but they brought in a bunch of other people from Assyria into the region. They just kind of intermingled everything. And Samaritans were people who were Jewish, but who co-married with uh, Assyrian people. So they were half Jewish, half Samaritan. And here's why this is an issue. Because for the Jewish people, part of being God's people was being Jewish, so it's not just that there was racial differences, but in their minds, the Samaritans, they sold out. They stopped trusting God. They gave up on him. They said they wanted to be Babylonians or Assyrians rather than followers of God. So there was a religious failing in the Jewish people's mind for the fact that the Samaritans had married Assyrian people. 
They wouldn't worship at the same temple. Most religious Jewish men would, wouldn't even enter into Samaria because that was ground that had been tarnished. They would travel the long way around Samaria because they wanted nothing to do with these people. There was very real racial tension. The second thing is that she was a woman. And um, Jesus, think about this, he's a 30-year-old single male rabbi religious teacher. Right? If people would have seen him having a private conversation with a woman, it could have created all sorts of rumors and innuendos. It could have harmed his reputation. Uh, Jesus was running the risk of having mud thrown on his reputation, even for talking with her. Most religious teachers didn't even speak to women that weren't their wife. And then the third, we're going to find this out next week. She had a sketchy reputation. This woman had been married and divorced five times already, and she was living with a man outside of marriage. So here's what I would say. Even in our modern secular culture, um, we view marriage very, very cheaply in our society, don't we? Like we have television shows where people get married before they ever even see each other for our entertainment because we think it's funny. We do not have a high view of marriage. But even in our modern and secular society, if someone's married and divorced five times, that still turns heads, right? Like if someone's like, yeah, I'm on my seventh wife, you kind of give them a look like, dude, you might want to find a new hobby, bro. You're not very good at this one. It doesn't seem, well, Jesus lived in a high honor society where adultery was punishable by death, where divorce was punishable by death. So for her to be married and divorced five times, she would have had a very, very tarnished reputation. There was a reason she was by herself at this well. She had been shut out from her community. Um, her reputation was very poor. There was a lot of reasons for Jesus to frame this woman negatively and not to want to have anything to do with her. And what I want to do right now is I want to put these next few points up at the same time because they're so closely related. Here's what I want to get at this morning for our hearts. Um, you know, there's two ways that we can frame people. We can frame people negatively with suspicion or we can frame people positively with hope. And how you frame someone is a choice. It's your choice to determine, are you going to hope all things and believe all things about someone else? Or are you going to choose to frame someone negatively and with suspicion? In church, this is so important. This gets right at the heart of what it means to see people like Jesus and to love people like Jesus. Do you know that we choose to frame people negatively all the time? that that's probably the standard operating procedure in our culture. I remember when I was at college at Moody. I, uh, Moody Bible Institute, if you don't know, it's right in downtown Chicago. And so one of the things you have to adjust to culturally when you go there is there's a lot of homeless people. And whether you're going to the store or going to get coffee or going to study, every time you go out, you'll walk by someone who's asking you for money, who's hitting you up, who's begging, or who is homeless. And I remember being at Moody and hearing other college kids talk, and they would be like, never give any money to someone who asks you for it because they're all drug addicts. They're all addicts. They're just going to spend that money on drugs or alcohol. Don't give any money to them. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't want to see people and frame people that way if I don't even know them. It's drawing very, very broad lines. Now, does addiction have a, a massive correlation to homelessness? Yes, absolutely. But is that everyone's story? Absolutely not. And so I remember being very conflicted as a college kid. Like, I, I don't know how to navigate this. I don't want to frame people just negatively and say they're all like this, but I can't give money away to everyone or else I won't have any anymore. And I didn't know how to navigate it. So guess what I would do? 
The most effective way I've found to navigate how to be generous and how not to frame people negatively is I would just pray before I would leave my building. And I'd be like, God, if you are calling me to be generous to someone, would your spirit just convict me in the moment to be generous to that person? And the cool thing was, is it would actually happen all the time. I'd walk by someone and I wouldn't feel any moment of conviction. The next person, it would be like God was clearly saying, hey, you need to help this person and you need to be generous. And I would take out my wallet and give them some money. But what I didn't want to do is just frame everyone who was homeless or asking for money as, well, they're all like this. It's not a loving way to frame people. We do this on an individual basis too, right? You can frame your coworker as lazy, right? He's just lazy. So then guess what happens? Every time he's five minutes late to work or he's a little late to a meeting, you just assume, well, that's just because he doesn't have his stuff together and he's not working hard and he's lazy. You frame him believing that this is what he is. And the problem when you frame people negatively, church, look at me, you lose any motivation to show compassion for them. Jesus had every right to frame this woman negatively and he didn't. Um, We even have a term for this in our culture, right? It's cancel culture. It's so acceptable in our society. We have this word that's like, listen, if someone says the wrong thing, if a celebrity does the wrong thing or posts the wrong thing on social media, it's like, hey, we're going to cancel this person. We're not going to listen to them anymore. We want to take away their endorsements. We want them to, to be shamed. We want nothing to do with them. Hear me. The gospel of Jesus Christ and cancel culture are absolutely incompatible. This city canceled this woman. Jesus didn't. He met with her and he spoke with her when no one else would. We deserve to be canceled by God because of our sin. We stand before God in rebellious, guilty, sinful people. God chooses to love and pursue and show kindness and forgiveness. Cancel culture is a wicked product of a broken society. And what breaks my heart is this framing people in the worst, it happens in the church all the time as well. Did you know that? Um, when I was 23 years old, I was a youth pastor in Orlando, and that's when I preached my first ever sermon. And um, at least at big church. I would teach the junior high and the high school, but I was 23 years old, and um, my elders were like, hey, we're going to allow you to preach uh, in the summer in, in Orlando, right? That's when no one's there, right? So it's like, hell, you can't mess things up too bad. We were a young church. We were about 200 people. And I remember they made me wear like long pants and a, a button like up shirt and a tie. Nothing better than preaching in 95 degree weather with 100% humility or humidity in a gym floor with a tie. It was wonderful. But um, I had worked so hard on that message and I'd probably preach it to Mary five times, that poor woman, like so sick of hearing me talk after that week. I had to give the message to my elders. Like it was a big deal for me. It was my first ever message. And I remember like as I was leaving, the church was super kind. They were super gracious. I got a ton of encouragement. But as I was leaving, um, I'm walking to the parking lot and all of a sudden I hear a, hey, you. And I'm like, oh, no. And I turn, and there's an older man walking to me in his 60s or 70s. And uh, I I didn't know him before. That meant he was a visitor. Our church was small enough. You kind of knew everyone. And he's like, what's your name? And I'm like, well, my name's Calvin. And he goes, well, I'm new here. And uh, I just want to tell you that when you got up to preach this morning, I thought to myself, what does this young whippersnapper have to teach me about anything? And he goes, but you know what? You weren't terrible. 
And I was like, is, is that a compliment? Like, I'm, I'm waiting to feel good about this conversation, right? But here's what happened. He saw a young guy get up to preach, and he framed my youth in a negative way. What does he know? What does he have to tell me? He's not worth listening to. It was a choice not to believe the best or hope the best, but to frame in a negative way. When we moved to Spring Lake, one of the things that would happen when we planted the church, Chris and I were 24 and 25, and what would happen early on is my dad would preach three times a month, and then I would preach once uh, the last Sunday of the month, and then the next month Chris would preach. So we would kind of preach six times a year. My dad was doing the majority. And when Chris and I would preach, we would get five times the criticism and complaints of my dad's messages. And I remember that was like really, really frustrating and discouraging for me. And I was like, man, it just seems like people are so much more critical when I preach and when Chris preaches than when my dad does. And I'm like, Chris, that makes sense. I get it. But me? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's a joke. I'm kidding. I felt for Chris too. And uh, my dad would tell us, he's like, guys, don't be discouraged. It's because you're young. And they're just making the choice to view you as young. Be humble, learn what you can, but it's because you're young. And the wild thing is, is now I'm on the other side of that coin where when, um, as a 36-year-old, when I preach, I get one-fifth of the criticisms that Jordan and Taylor and Jake get when they preach because they're the young generation now. And guess what I tell them? Be humble, learn what you can, but it's okay. Like, it's because you're young. People are choosing to frame your youth as a negative. They're choosing not to believe the best. And so I just would love to hear, I would love for you to hear my heart in this pastorally. Hey church, we want to be a place that celebrates and is excited about the fact that we have young men who love God's word, who are called to ministry and are growing in their leadership abilities, aren't we? And so here's what I'm asking. Trust us that we take God's word very seriously that we take theology seriously, and that we are investing an incredible amount of time and effort into growing their giftedness. But what, what I would love is when our young guys preach, that they are overwhelmed, not with criticism, but with encouragement and cheering on and thankfulness for the things God's doing in our church through them. Amen? All right, if you're with me, say I'm with you. Okay, good. Glad we got that fixed. How we frame people is a choice that we make, and you're choosing to be loving or not be loving, right? This plays out into marriage. Um, when we talk about marriage counseling with couples, one of the things we say is, is don't use 100% words. Don't use words like always or never, because what you're doing is, is those are framing words. So let me use an example. Like if Mary asked me to take the garbage down to the garage, and I forget, and I don't do it, or I don't listen, Right? Mary could say, hey, Cal, why didn't you take the garbage down? I, I asked you to do it. What's up? Right? That's one way to handle it. Or she could say, hey, Calvin, why are you always a dismissive husband? Why do you never listen to me? Do you see the difference in intensity in those words? Because when she calls me always dismissive or never listening, now she's framed me in a negative way. And now we're not talking about the problem anymore. She's attacking the person. And that usually makes things worse. It doesn't make things better, right? If you frame your boss as someone who never listens or who doesn't care, you're framing them in a way where it's going to be impossible to have a healthy relationship with them. 
And church, I could talk more about this, but this is why gossip is such a destructive force in a community. Because what it is, is it's encouraging others to frame people negatively as well. It's accelerating mistrust. You choose how you frame others. And so can I ask you a question? How's that going for you? How do you frame the people in your life? How do you frame your coworkers? How do you frame your boss? How do you frame your parents or your kids or your spouse? How, how do you frame the leaders of your um, school board or your church or your government? How do we choose to frame others? Love believes all things and hopes all things. Do you? All right, look at verse 7. It says, the woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here's what I want you to see about Jesus right here. Like, even the fact that Jesus would speak to her, the woman is caught off guard by it. Jesus is like, hey, can you give me a drink? And she's like, whoa, what are you doing talking to me? You have no business interacting with me at all. And it's not like she's offended that Jesus would do it. She's like, I can't believe you would care about me. And here's what we see about Jesus. We see this is how Jesus frames people. He frames them with love and with hope. Jesus made the choice to say, I value you, I care about you, I see you, and I will engage with you and talk to you and show myself to you, even if others won't, and even if it is not in my best interest. He chose to love. And here's the other thing I love about Jesus, church. He views this woman not in the light of her failure, but he views her in the light of what she will become through faith in Christ. We'll get into this next week, but this woman with a sketchy reputation whose own village had canceled her would become the catalyst that would cause many in this village to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This woman would be a catalyst for revival, and that is a miracle that only the gospel can produce. Church, Jesus sees us the same way. Do you know that? And this should really affect our hearts. Psalm 103 says this. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It says that when God sees us, he chooses to take our sin and remove it from us as far as the east is from the west. He's making a choice to say, I don't view you through the lens of your sin and rebellion and failure, but I'm choosing to view you through the frame and the lens that you are redeemed and saved and justified by Jesus Christ. So we can approach God with confidence because God is making the choice to frame us in a way that says, I love you and you're adopted and I'm for you and forgiven. This is how the gospel changes our perception of us and others. If you want to see people like Jesus does, if you want to love people like Jesus does, then you need to make the choice. I'm gonna believe all things and I'm gonna hope all things. And listen, look at me. Does that mean we're gonna get burned sometimes? Absolutely. Does that mean putting you or, your, or others or your family in a position of physical harm? No. 
But here's my concern. I think so often Christians love to say, hey, I'm going to forgive and be a forgiving person. But practically, it's like I forgive you, but I still don't trust you. And I'm still going to frame you in a negative light because you hurt me. That's not actual forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying I'm choosing again to believe all things and hope all things. And forgiveness means that your sin against me is not going to negatively impact our relationship and how I think about you. This idea that that you can forgive but also choose not to trust and be suspicious, it's not compatible. Jesus is challenging how we forgive and how we love. Look at John 4, verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's changing the subject. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty and have to come here and draw water. So Jesus is making a spiritual analogy here and the woman's not tracking with it. But here's what I want you to see about Jesus Compare this to his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, and what you're going to see is Jesus is talking to two very different people, and he has two very different approaches, right? Remember when Jesus met with Nicodemus in John 3? He was a leader of the Pharisees, a religious man, a holy man with a great reputation. Guess what Jesus tells him? He's like, dude, you need to be born again. All of your good works, they count for nothing. You need to start completely over. Salvation comes through faith, not by your moral performance. That's how he approached Nicodemus with the gospel. What he does with the woman is very, very different. Here's what he's telling her. He goes, hey, I know that your heart is longing for love and affection and acceptance, and your way isn't working. You're still thirsty, you're still tired, you're not finding it. If you come to me, if you trust me, I can satisfy the eternal longings of your soul that no human relationship can ever accomplish for you. He's like, your way's not working, girl, but if you come to me, you can find life and satisfaction. Like, I even think the dynamic of the meetings, it's it's interesting. Nicodemus came at night, because he didn't want others to see him with Jesus because that might harm his reputation. Jesus is putting his reputation at risk in the middle of the day to sit and talk with this woman. And what's so brilliant about Jesus is that it's the same gospel message tailored perfectly to the person he's talking to. Here's what Jesus is saying. Look at me. Your heart is designed to worship and love God. You were created to perform a specific function, to know, love, and worship your creator. And and listen, sin has corrupted that. So what sin does in our heart is it moves our worship off of God onto other things, either ourselves or other individuals or or, or things or careers or money. Like, Like Our worship gets transferred from God to something else. That's what sin does in our hearts. But if we aren't worshiping God, we're ultimately worshiping an idol and something that will ultimately destroy us. 
I had a friend reach out to me. His name's Gabe Dunn. He reached out to me last weekend. And he goes, hey, Cal. And he sent me the link to a Tim Keller sermon. And he was like, hey, Cal, I want you to listen to this sermon. It really made me think of you. Which, by the way, whenever someone sends you a sermon and it's like, I'm thinking about you, that's a little scary. I'm like, oh, no, what is in this message? What's he trying to say to me? But it actually wasn't discouraging at all. It was super encouraging. It was Tim Keller preaching through the Psalms, talking about the nature of worship. And here's what he said in his message. I love this. He said, if you put your worship and hope on something other than God, you are already a goner. You're playing a losing game and you are going to end up devastated. If all of your worship and all of your hope is on your spouse, what happens when that spouse passes away? You're left devastated, you're left destroyed, you can't move on. If all of your hope and all of your worship is focused on your career, what happens if you lose your job or what happens when retirement comes? Now you have nothing to live for and you are devastated. Jesus is saying to the woman at the well, you are putting your hopes in things that are failing you. Turn to me and I will satisfy the longing of your heart. The things, church, look at me. I'm so serious right now. The thing that your heart desires most, Jesus will provide for you. So as we get ready to wrap up, I wanna close this way. I wanna ask a question. What are you thirsty for? Like, do you know your heart well enough to be like, this is the thing that practically I live for and I strive for every single day? And here's what I want to say to you. Jesus will provide the satisfaction your heart is looking for in that very thing. Like, maybe you're here and you're like, what I really want, I want validation. I want people to see me and I want people to know me and I want people to see how hard I work and, and the integrity that I have. And I just, whether it be my parents or my friends or my spouse or my kids, I just want to be validated. Listen, you are validated in Christ. He sees you. He loves you. He empowers you. He's given you his spirit. He sets you on mission. All of the validation that you are looking for, that your job isn't providing for you, Jesus has already provided it. Right? Maybe you're hearing like, man, I just want to be loved. And I want the security of love. And I want to know that someone cares for me and is there for me. And I can set my roots down with someone. Listen, Jesus' love for you is perfect. It is unwavering. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, not even death itself. It is more secure than even the love of a spouse. And by the way, when you find your ultimate love in Jesus, it frees you to love those in your life actually better and to have more healthy relationships because you're not using them to fill something that you need, but you can love them sacrificially and because God loves them. Like maybe you're here and you're like, man, Cal, it is... February in Michigan and I haven't seen the sun in like six weeks and I'm tired and I'm worn out and I just want some peace and rest. The rest that Jesus gives us knowing that our eternity is in paradise with him, that there's nothing that can move that, that there's nothing that can shake that and that we will be with our God forever. That is a rest that you can have that is way better than any 10-day vacation in Mexico, I promise. Are vacations good things? Yes, I love them. But they can never be ultimate things. They don't have the power to sustain. In a year from now, you're gonna need another vacation. Listen, 
Jesus will satisfy the longings of your soul. And, and what I love about this passage, what Jesus is doing is he's telling this woman the same thing that God has always told his people. This is from a prophecy hundreds of years before in Isaiah where God is talking to his people. Here's what he says, and compare this to what Jesus tells the woman. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Listen, Jesus is offering us the best, most satisfied life. That's what he is offering the woman at the well in Samaria. That is what he is offering to us today. Are we going to listen to him? Are we gonna trust him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this morning. I just thank you for all you're doing in our church, in the middle schoolers and with the young babies and young families in our church. What an awesome thing. And God, I just uh, would pray that we would be a people who look to you for satisfaction. May we love like you. May we see others like you. There's so much for us to wrestle with practically here, but we need your help because we are far from perfect. And I'm so thankful that you see us through the frame of hope and love. May we hold on to that with all we have. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.